please join me in welcoming this evening's guest moderator, author Ramit Sethi, and tonight's guest, author Tim Ferriss. This is as fancy as I get. It's in, <laughs> this is in New York. But notice. Thanks for coming, everybody. This is very exciting. So certainly think up any type of curveball, fastball that you would like. Looking forward to the Q&A. All right. Let's, uh, let me start by introducing Tim. For anybody who hasn't heard of him, Tim Ferriss is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, The 4-Hour Workweek and author of the new bestseller, The 4-Hour Body. Newsweek calls Tim the world's best guinea pig. And here are a few examples of that. Tim holds the Guinness world record for the most tango spins in one minute. He was the 1999 national kickboxing champion. And he is an investor in companies like Twitter and Facebook. Tim's speeches are peppered with words from psychologists, ancient Roman philosophers, and Olympic trainers. His focus is exploiting the Pareto Principle, also known as the 80-20 rule, to get maximum results in the minimum amount of time. His newest book focuses on unconventional approaches to fat loss, muscle gain, and sexual performance, ranging from Tim gaining 34 pounds of muscle in one month to the detailed study of the 15-minute female orgasm. Tim received his BA from Princeton University in 2000, where he studied in the Neuroscience and East Asian Studies Department. So, once again, let's welcome Tim Ferriss. All right. So, Tim, before we get... <laughs> Ramit has so much dirt on me. I'm just <laughs> looking forward to seeing what comes <laughs> out here. going to get a couple drinks up here. <laughs> so, before we get started, I actually want to check from the audience. Has anyone here lost 10 pounds using Tim's material? Wow. I would say about, uh, yeah, about... 10%, 15% on Anybody here lost 20 pounds? Okay. Anybody lost over 30 pounds using Tim's material? Nice. All right, Congratulations. Great. Beautiful. I'm personally curious, has anyone improved their sexual performance using Tim's book? <laughs> One nice. very proud man in the back. Congratulations, sir. All right. So, Tim, you started with the four-hour work week and now you've written The 4-Hour Body, and I'm just curious, there are hundreds and hundreds of other books in the health space published every year. Why this book? There are a few factors that all converged, and they were, they were sequential, but then they accumulatively really convinced me that this was the book that needed to be written. So first is, even though most people associate me with time management, or many people did after the first book, the truth is that the, the real obsession is the physical tracking and predates that by a decade. So I've, I've tracked food intake and workouts since about age 16 or so, and I still have foot, probably four feet of notebooks uh, starting from first year, or actually the summer preceding college, and then uh, even before that. The second is, it was a very personal journey for me related to my family. My dad was uh, very overweight. He was 250 pounds at 5'6", and had a number of health problems. And he was also limited in what he could do because he'd fractured, he had multiple knee surgeries, shoulder surgeries, and had fractured his leg, one leg in particular in about 15 places. He had fallen off of a ladder and the leg had become threaded through the ladder as he fell. So he couldn't do squats, leg presses, uh, many different types of cardio. And I wanted to take, in this particular case, before the book ever came about, wanted to take the split testing, the multivariate testing, which, which Ramit knows a lot about, 
and we, we swap a lot of our findings on that, that you could apply to a web startup and apply it to the human body and see what the results would be. And did that with my dad, and he lost 90 plus pounds of fat and gained 20 to 30 pounds of muscle, and that's a 65-year-old who can't really use his legs. Uh, which took him from, in his, in his annual uh, doctor visit, and I, I, of course, recommend having testing done much more frequently, but it took him from, you know, you really need to change A, B, and C, or you're in danger of these following fatal problems to, I don't know what you're doing, but keep on doing what you're doing. You might just live forever. Literally, the words of his doctor. Uh, lastly, was realizing that the physical body is the, the force multiplier, positive or negative, for everything else. And I remember having a conversation in 2007 with Clive Thompson of Wired Magazine, and in the banter before the interview, jokingly said that the fears of modern man could be boiled down to too much email and getting fat. And then thought about it afterwards, I was like, that's actually kind of true. I mean, and uh, when, people, when people change what they view as unchangeable related to the physical body, and that's the one area I've found where people who kick ass in every other area of their lives accept mediocrity in the physical body, once they change that, then the transfer to other areas where they start to test those assumptions is tremendous. Uh, so I felt like I could have the broadest impact possible by writing the second book. All right. One of the common elements in both your books is using this Pareto principle, this 80-20 rule, um, to get maximum benefit in minimum time and sometimes minimum effort. Can you explain what that is and how it relates to health and the body? So the Pareto principle, Vilfredo Pareto, uh, looked at the uneven distribution of wealth in society. And he realized at the same time that this disproportionate input and output, let's just say, could be applied to gardening. So 20% of the peas would produce, our pea pods would produce 80 plus percent of the peas. It could also be applied to many, many other things. And I've seen it uh, in customers, products, certainly time management when you look at uh, time consuming activities, removing different steps and processes like lean manufacturing. But it can also apply to the human body. If you think about exercise and nutrition as a drug, which I encourage people uh, to think of both as. Dr. Doug McGuff is, uh, I would credit with, with coming up with this, is you realize there's a dose. There's a minimum effective dose, just like taking an antibiotic, where you get the result you're looking for. Any less than that won't achieve the result. Any more than that is redundant and causes side effects. And that's true with exercise. So rather than saying, well, you should do five sets of 12, three sets of 15, whatever it might be, which in most cases are, are completely arbitrary, you can look at the science and then test over a very short period of time, like two weeks, and determine that, let's say, for the medial deltoid, the side, of, the side of the shoulder here, you can do 80 to 120 seconds of tension with a specific weight to failure, and you need that once a week, and you have consistent progress, and you make more progress in the span of eight weeks than you'd made in the, the prior five years. And that precision, I think, is very important. And if you look at exercise science and nutrition in particular, they're really where surgery was in the 1600s. It's very primitive, and the science is really sloppy. And that's why you find people like Gary Taubes, for example, trained in physics, Harvard-educated, very smart guy, who can come in and look at nutrition and go, oh my god, this is so sloppy, and come out with some very clear conclusions that are contested 
But otherwise, from my opinion, at least, uh, pretty hard to convincingly argue against. So I wanted to, I wanted to take the testing and, uh, and see what could be done with it. So let's talk about the fact that this area is so contested. Uh, your books, both of them, have been very controversial. In fact, has anyone here searched on Google for Tim Ferriss, and when you type the last S, what's the next word you see? Scam. So, yes. So, I'm curious, what has been the most controversial response you've gotten from the book, and what has surprised you about that controversy? I did not predict accurately what the most controversial portion of the book would be. I, I talk very openly about performance-enhancing drugs and the place, and I do think there's a place for, uh, let's just say, anabolics or uh, growth agents when used appropriately under medical supervision and moderately for, let's just say, surgical recovery uh, or uh, in the treatment of burn victims, wasting diseases, etc. Uh, I, I think that they, they're valuable tools and they have a place when used legally and, and under medical supervision. I expected that to have to, to create a tremendous amount of blowback. And I, got, I, I have seen, at least when making the rounds and media and so forth, zero, not even mention made of it. I was astonished. I had, I had all my ducks in a row. I was so ready to, to, to refute every single attack I received and then nothing happened. Uh, there were two areas, I would say, where uh, the book has been very controversial. Number one, is with the Geek to Freak muscle gain chapter. And there are already many readers who have far outpaced my muscle gain, so <laughs> the it's impossible claim is a little hard to support since there are already people who have overtaken me in that department. That was very, very controversial. Uh, the, the Can you explain what that is? What is that? So the Geek to, the, the geek to Freak experiment was where I gained, where I added the 34 pounds of, of lean um, body mass in 28 days and lost about, uh, I think it was three pounds of fat and reduced my cholesterol from 222 to 147, if I remember correctly. Uh, no use of prescription drugs over the span of four weeks. And you, there are many people out there in the world uh, who appropriate concepts that are valid in and of themselves, like calories in, calories out, from a thermodynamics standpoint. But then they bastardize the whole thing, and they, they, they use it to justify an argument where it doesn't make any sense. In other words, calories in, in this context, would be eating. Calories out, they mistakenly believe, is only exercise. Whereas if you excrete it, if you uh, dissipate calories as heat, if you change your hormonal response to food, all of those tweak that equation quite dramatically. Uh, and that's why... For example, another experiment I did was, was consuming 6.8 times, I believe it was, my resting metabolic rate, and then clocking in at a lower body fat percentage. I'm like, how does that happen? It's entirely possible. So the Geek to Freak was extremely controversial. And then the sex chapter, uh, the sex chapters, I should say, have been controversial. I expected that. Uh, I didn't expect necessarily that my books would be yanked from the shelves of Costco because of the gra rather graphic illustrations. I wanted to use photographs, <laughs> and the publisher was just like, no, you cannot use photographs. They didn't let you use cartoons? We're not going to negotiate. <laughs> right, so <laughs> they said, you can't use photographs. <laughs> and uh, you're talking about the Charlie anecdotes? So Charlie, uh, <laughs> Charlie's one of my employees. Uh, Charlie and I were like, OK, well, maybe we can fix this. So we took these ridiculous smiley faces 
and put them over the heads of the people in the photographs and sent them back. And they were like, no, not good enough. <laughs> they were really funny. So that was disappointing. Uh, I was hoping to have like a director's cut, X-rated, unrated version released somewhere else, but <laughs> hasn't happened yet. Uh, that's, that's about it. I'd say those are the most controversial. And quite frankly, I haven't responded to most of it because if what I claim works, works as quickly as I claim they work, then readers should start submitting and posting results that will immediately defeat the critics' uh, attacks, which is exactly what's happened. So people are like, that's impossible. I'm like, really? Here are 30 people, <laughs> I don't know, who have done it and here are their photographs. Uh, and that's been really fun and gratifying thus far. One thing that happened, maybe it was about a year and a half or two years ago, you were in the writing phase of your book. I'll share this story with everyone. Tim and I and a couple of friends went out to dinner and it was, I don't know, 7 or 8 p.m. and we had, it was, I think it was a steak place. We had a pretty large meal, each of us, and you know, dessert comes and I think a couple of us had dessert and we're ready to get the check and go and Tim says, do you guys mind, uh, I'm doing a little test, do you guys mind if I just get one quick thing? We're like, okay, thinking he's gonna get a side of whatever. He orders an entire another steak and to our astonishment, eats it in front of us. Do you remember that night? <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, and we were like, what the hell are you on? And you pulled up and you showed us some device uh, that was attached to your body. <laughs> yeah, implanted in my body. This was a, a Dexcom 7 continuous glucose monitor. So I'm actually just curious about what did you eat today and what did you eat on your last cheat day? Uh, today, let's see, for breakfast I had... Uh, I didn't have eggs because I ran out of eggs. I would have had eggs. I had a, a boatload of turkey bacon. That's because I'm spending time with someone who won't eat pork bacon to my dismay. But turkey bacon, kale, black beans, and half an avocado as a warm-up. And then two hours later, had another meal, which was uh, miso, let's see. It was a miso sauce on salmon, steamed salmon, with bok choy and a few other vegetables with an unsweetened iced tea. And that's it. And I had, I've had two cups of black coffee as well. And that's it. And what that's about fine. your cheat day? Oh yeah, my cheat day. Oh, I also had, just as a side note, I've also probably had 15 grams of vitamin C, powdered vitamin C, around 30 grams of L-glutamine. In terms of supplementations, I also took three, three capsules of Nordic, I think it's Nordic, Naturals Omega-3. This morning, I'll take krill oil this evening, although I'm going to discontinue krill oil. And that's, that's, I think, all the supplementation I've taken today. Cheat day. Oh, my God. It's hard for me to separate out my cheat days because I go, I blind myself with carbohydrates. <laughs> I can barely see straight. Uh, I don't recall my, my last cheat day, but I will say that a typical cheat day, because I, I, a creature of habit, might be... Uh, wake up, have a slow carb breakfast. That's, that's a trick for damage control, for, for stabilizing your blood sugar. I'll also have around eight ounces of, of freshly squeezed grapefruit juice, which can blunt the glucose response. Uh, then, that's small, less than 500 calories. Then I will have, go down to my bakery, my favorite bakery, have two chocolate croissants, one or two bear claws, big cup of coffee, maybe with some milk, which I don't usually do. Uh, cinnamon, I'm gonna leave out the supplementation. There's plenty of supplements that I take on cheat days. And then I will 
walk half a mile down to my local market and maybe grab some quinoa, a kombucha, and uh, maybe some creamed chicken with almonds, and I'll have that. And <laughs> I could go on and on. This is like every two hours I'm doing something like this. I really like to eat. That dinner, though, I'll probably have a, a wild nettle pizza with pancetta and an egg on top, and I'll eat the entire pizza. And uh, I'll have a couple of appetizers as well. And then I'll have an affogato, which would be ice cream and espresso. And then if I'm still hungry, I'll have something else. I really like dark chocolate with sea salt. That's just delicious. And baklava. I have a big container of baklava that I'm chipping away at that I bought in Jordan. So that'll be an example. Yeah, I don't. Anybody surprised I, by that quantity? I don't. Uh, I don't fuck around on cheat days. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna take questions in just a few minutes. So if you've got one, it's a good time to think about it. I want to talk about the publishing side of this. Um, these days, there are a lot of interesting and different models of books that are coming out. In fact, one of the more popular types of books is the Seth Godin-esque, Thirty-Seven Signals-esque, very thin book. Each chapter is about one or two pages. Your book, by contrast, is a behemoth. I got it in the mail and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this thing? Am I supposed to actually read it or do I use it to hold my door open? And, and you, you were very explicit about saying this is not a book to be read entirely all the way through. You actually pick and choose. Can you talk about the different styles you envisioned when you wrote your book and how did it end up being so long? That was after cutting 150 pages also, at least. What was really amusing about that is when I initially sold the four-hour body, I reiterated over and over again to my publisher, I said, this, just to make sure we're on the same page, this is going to be a short book, 120 to 150 pages. I'm covering A, B, and C, that's it. So I don't want to hear any, any whining and complaining when it comes in short. Uh, it became, a, let me take a step back and talk about the objective of the book. There are, there, are a, there are many, many great books on nutrition and fitness, but I wanted to create a single volume that for the vast majority of people would be the last book they would ever have to buy on those subjects. And I also write books to be read multiple times. I intend them to be reference books. And for me, selfishly speaking, that also gives the book a much longer lifespan. I don't want my books or my, my writing in general to be a sugar high of inspiration that then leaves people lacking for the how-to. So the four-hour work week's coming up soon, very soon, on four years unbroken on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, four-hour body, I wrote with every intention of setting the conditions so that it could do the same thing. Not that the New York Times bestseller list is an indication by itself of the best-selling books of all time. It isn't, but it is certainly one indication of sales. Uh, there's a place for manifestos. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a book coming out soon, actually through Domino Project with Seth Godin, uh, written by Derek Sivers. And I'm a huge fan of Derek Sivers. He's a very good friend of mine of CD Baby, so I'm writing a review for that, which is very unlike me, as you know. Yeah. Uh, but I love Derek, and it's going to be good. You have to, I, I feel it's very important as a consumer, as a reader, to determine if someone is writing using a soundbite-like format because it's the best format for delivering their message or because they just don't have the chops and can't write longer form. Those are two very different things. 
And from my perspective, there is, there is, a, there is great value in being forced to write something of greater length which, with a cohesive arc. It forces you to think through your material very carefully. And it forces you to think about the sequencing very carefully. So I don't think most of what's in the 4-Hour Body is not new, nor do I care if it's new. But the way in which I sequence it, the way in which I set it up from a behavioral psych standpoint after talking to people like BJ Fogg, and we both know, I do think that is somewhat novel. And in a very short manifesto format, it's, it's, uh, it's easy to not pay attention to structure. There are some fantastic books, though, out there. I mean, uh, you know, Getting Real by the 37 Signals guy, I think, is, 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 a, really, uh, is a really useful book. Uh, but I prefer the long book. I prefer to take, or I should say the complete book. I like to have a complete book. I would rather spend three years working on a book that I can really be proud of five years later that's, that's not going to be outdated because I can update it over time, as I've already updated the 4-Hour Body uh, over nine printings. A lot of people aren't aware of that. I mean, I'm continually updating. Uh, and then I want it to stay on the bestseller list forever. <laughs> so... Uh, and that forces me to really pay attention to the material. So I, I enjoy that deep immersion for a longer period of time. Uh, what's, what's one thing, or actually, let me ask you this. What's something you wish you had known before you'd written this book? I'll tell you one thing I'm glad I didn't know. I'm glad I didn't realize that it was going to be almost 600 pages because I wouldn't have even started. The reason it got that long, as a side note, is because everything ended up being so interrelated. I couldn't, in good conscience, neglect talking about, let's just say, reproductive health and reproductive problems as related to grains or primarily, uh, let's just say, a vegan diet. I couldn't, with good conscience, ignore those facets. And as soon as I started to explore, let's say, testosterone, it led to luteinizing hormone, which led to female sexuality. I wanted it to be comprehensive, and I didn't want to provide people with 80% of the puzzle. I wanted to provide as much as necessary and no more. And it turned out that what I felt was necessary was what ended up in the book. All right, and my last question for you is, I've spoken to a lot of your readers, and I think it's fair to say that you've inspired a lot of people to want to do something beyond the ordinary, beyond what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, whether that be investigating their muse, uh, taking a mini retirement three times a year, uh, optimizing their body in whatever way they want to do. So I'm curious if you can share some of the techniques you use to come up with an idea. Like you just became interested in your health and a lot of people are interested in their health. But here you are speaking at the Apple store and you've got a huge picture of your book and your picture was up there. How do you go from X to Y? How do you go from having this idea to being able to implement something that millions of people see? What are some of the techniques you've used to accomplish that? To identify the idea? To identify the idea and go from idea to execution? I have a very simple approach uh, to, to content and product creation. And it's a perhaps limited approach also. So people have asked me, well, what's the next book? And I've said, I'm not sure if I have another book in me. I'm not, <laughs> I may be done with interesting things to say, quite frankly. Uh, I focus on my own obsessions or scratching my own itch, just like Jack Dorsey and the guys at Twitter started off making Twitter as something that they would use themselves. And now it's become something that can overthrow governments, along with Facebook. I, st I don't want to speculate about a market I don't understand. I would rather start off 
building or exploring something that I know at least has a market of one. And then it's a, it's, it's a matter of, of testing. And you're, of course, very sophisticated with testing. And testing could be as easy as noticing certain patterns like, doesn't matter where I start in a tech conference or at a dinner, it always ends up being a bunch of CEOs asking me how they can lose abdominal fat. And so this happened for a few years and I was like, Jesus, I need to write this book just so I don't have to have this conversation 100 times a year. And it's as, it's as simple and as complicated as that. Meaning, once I find, let's just say, a set of approaches that I believe capitalize on a very non-obvious counterintuitive solution, a positive shortcut, in other words, I need to make sure that that is replicable. And I need to test that. Fortunately, with a, a blog that, that gets uh, around a million uniques a month, it's become very easy for me to find guinea pigs to test things within the bound of ethics if they're not going to be putting themselves in danger. So I can get very good data very quickly. Uh, but, you, but for me, as someone who's providing how-to instruction, I need to make sure that the results are replicable. Uh, and that takes time. That's part of the reason the book took three years. Uh, but I would encourage people to scratch their own itch and then develop things around that because you're not guaranteed a success. So if you design for someone else and then you fail, you didn't even enjoy the process. So I would say design for yourself and worst case scenario, you end up some, with something very valuable for yourself and you enjoy the process along the way. All right, let's take some questions from the audience. Hey, how are you guys? My name's Eric. Just a quick shout out to Ramit. You're teaching me to be rich, baby. Love you. Um, but Tim, you gave us some great insight into a typical day of your diet and a typical cheat day. Can you give us some insight into a typical current workout regimen? So current workout regimen is really maintenance phase at the moment. I'm actually doing more prehab than anything else. Uh, I, I thrive with having a, a goal with some form of deadline. Uh, so as, as some people here may know, I'm going to be training for uh, a marathon or an ultra marathon this year. I ended up with some issues with plantar fasciitis in my right foot. So I've been dealing with that and fixing that, which I'm confident I'll fix. A lot of what I'm doing is prehab. What that means is I'm focusing on using, let's say, lacrosse ball for soft tissue work, particularly on the foot, but also on the back and other areas. I am... Do, using the chop and lift, which is uh, in the one of the, the prehab chapters in the book, which is diagonal movements in four directions to identify weaknesses and fix the weakest quadrant, after which you find many other issues resolve themselves. Uh, hip, posterior chain, so kettlebell swings. It's hard to get me to stop doing kettlebell swings. Uh, primarily things that will not add much muscular size. I've actually lost... I'm guessing here between 15 and 20 pounds, including muscular mass in the last two months. And that's entirely deliberate. Uh, but my workouts are exceptionally short, tend to focus on neural, neural drive. So the deadlifts would be an example of that, where you can add several hundred pounds to a maximal lift while gaining less than 10% starting body mass. And then primarily prehab after that point. What's being said about your work from the medical field? That's a, that's a very good question. Uh, I would say the uh, the reviews have been mostly positive. If people have read 
the material. There are some really amusing articles out there. There was one from uh, US World of News Report, if you want to see a skeptical piece, where m there are, there's skeptic after skeptic cited, and they all say, I haven't read the book, but <laughs> it sounds too good to be true. Like, that's a very unscientific response to a scientific question. Uh, but you'll notice also within the book itself, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about post-book, but there are I very eagerly collaborated with some very good MDs and uh, very classically trained but open-minded MDs who recognize that evidence-based medicine requires experimentation. And you can pull from clinical research, but in some cases you don't need to. And in fact, you can get results much faster if you're looking at, let's say, your personal response to removing dairy or gluten. You can track these things very easily. The results been very, the, uh, the feedback has been very positive. I also debated, if anyone's interested, a, uh, an MD on ABC a while back. Uh, so you could take a look at that. But the, the response has generally been very, very good. Where I would encourage people to be skeptical uh, is, or a question I would encourage people to ask, when they're assessing valid versus biased skepticism is, what is this person selling? So if someone has, let's say, a diet that is the basis of their income that is antithetical to the slow-carb diet, it doesn't automatically mean that their skepticism or their criticism is uh, invalid, but it certainly should raise a red flag. Uh, but the general feedback's been fantastic. There are doctors who prescribe the slow-carb diet to diabetic patients. Uh, there are multiple reports from type 1 diabetics on my blog and elsewhere where they've been able to reduce their uh, fast-acting fast insulin by 50%, 75%. So part of the reason why it's an important for people with medical conditions to work under the supervision of a doctor, because you wouldn't want to continue using the same doses of insulin. Uh, and the, the vanity piece, you know, the, the six-pack abs and the nice ass and all that stuff, that's a Trojan horse for the health changes. So you, you'll also see I don't sell the health changes because people don't change their behavior based on long-term nebulous definition of health, very rarely. But you can trick them into getting those results. In, a, in the kindest way possible. Uh, but the, the feedback's been, been really positive for the most part uh, from the people who've read the book. This, this is something really interesting that you and I have discussed privately, and that is this psychology of changing behavior. Yeah, and you, you make a, Ramit makes a guest appearance in the book. Yeah, well, I, uh, I used some psychology to actually gain a significant amount of weight because I was a pretty skinny dude, and I could never have gained weight until I started trash-talking my friends and betting hundreds of dollars against them that I could do it, and I crushed them. But the, uh, the psychological part is actually very important. For example, when people try to sell other, when personal finance experts say to young people, you, you really need to start investing for retirement. Young people, first thing they do, eyes glaze over. Because nobody cares about retirement. What they do care about is being rich. Same thing right. with yeah. the four hour body. They don't say, I really want to learn how to use the lat pull down. They say, I want six pack abs, or I want the four hour body. So. The psychology and the education part is very important to get that marketing right. And not, marketing is not a bad word. It can actually cause dramatic behavioral change if you can understand how people work. One more point that I'll add to that is, is there are critics, there, there are many critics, and I welcome the critics because quite frankly, uh, the, the smarter ones who are informed help me refine my own thinking. There are many critics who miss the importance of compliance. So they'll say, oh, well, the slow carb diet, that's nonsense because you're allowing people to eat beans something like that. And the point I would make is, you know, I go from, let's say, a 10% success rate to a 70 or 80% success rate when I allow beans and legumes. 
And for the vast majority of the population, if let's say they're soaked or bought canned or A, B, C, D, and E, they won't cause any issues whatsoever. Uh, so the efficacy is important, but the compliance is just as important. And I pay a lot of attention to the actual end result. How many people are following the program? And the, the, the best program is not necessarily the perfect program. The best program is the most complete program that you'll actually continue with. Uh, so that's a, that's a point that many of them miss, is the behavioral psych, psych side of things. Tim, uh, Tim-san, Oh, Hi. Uh, so, so I have a question not related to your book, but so uh, uh, given the fact that you are an angel investor and uh, guest lecturer to high-tech entrepreneurship class in Princeton, and then uh, TechCrunch Disrupt New York just ended yesterday, and then there are three startups. One of them is GetAround, which is Airbnb, Airbnb for cars. One of them is Sonar, which is like basic, uh, location-based uh, kind of service uh, build up on Foursquare. And the third startup is called Duat. It's like mobile search engine. So if uh, you will invest to only one of these companies, where would you, would you invest as, a, in, in, as an industry? What, what, was, what was the last one again? Duat. It's like mobile search where you, you do a search, for example, a movie, and then you can see all without registering without being registered at any of, without installing any of these apps, you can use them like Flickster, uh, IMDB, and so on. Okay, I would invest in the first one uh, because it's the easiest to grasp, assuming you know what Airbnb is, which, which allows you to, I just used Airbnb to get my apartment here in New York City. Uh, and, I, and I met those, the founders of Airbnb actually at the first YC demo day that they, uh, where, they, where they pitched, which is pretty fun. They've done really well. Uh, I don't understand, I don't understand the spaces for the last. I don't understand mobile well enough to feel comfortable. And the question I ask with, with companies I invest in is, would, would I use this also? It's very simplistic, according to many angel investors, but I'm doing all right so far. I haven't had any fatalities over three some odd years, and I've had a couple exits. Uh, the second is built on Foursquare, which is not a bad bet, but I personally don't understand that space well enough to be comfortable with a company that is built entirely on the backbone of yet another startup. And then Airbnb for cars, I'm an advisor to Uber, which just launched in New York City, so I encourage everyone to check it out and download the Uber app, it's fantastic. I'm comfortable with that space, so I would probably look at the first. Hi, Tim. Hey. Um, I have a question, I'm a vegetarian, but I actually eat fish, so officially a pescatarian. And for my protein portion, I usually eat eggs, fish, or uh, whey protein isolate. So my question is, um, is the protein slowing my weight loss um, in any way? And in addition to that, as a woman, is it working uh, as effectively as it does for men for building muscle? When you say protein, you're referring specifically to the whey protein? Specifically to, to whey protein isolate or any other protein that you suggest that may right. work more effectively. For fat loss specifically. Might as well just hold on to that. Okay. okay. <laughs> for fat loss, right? Yes. All right. So I would say, uh, number one, just to be very clear, because some people like, accuse me of being like, funded by the meat industry. I don't even know what that would mean, but uh, <laughs> it's like the meat industry paid for my vest. I better pay on lip service. Uh, you don't need, for example, red meat to, to really kick ass physically in many, many different respects. Bill Pearl would be a great example of that. Former Mr. Universe, 21-inch biceps, and he, he was a lacto-ovo-vegetarian. Uh, but the standpoint of fat loss, I, where whey protein isolate could slow your progress is if it has artificial sweeteners in it, like Splenda, mm -hmm. among others, which can cause digestive issues. Uh, 
related to the, the mac the uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not the microbiome. I think it is the microbiome. In any case, the, the bacterial menagerie in your gut, it, it can change it with firmicides and so forth. Secondly, uh, these sweeteners also do provoke an insulin spike. They do have an insulinogenic effect. So if you're going to do the whey protein isolate, I would make it unflavored. Mm -hmm. okay. And I would also consume it most likely earlier in the day because it's the simple sugar of proteins, basically. Mm -hmm. You're going to get a very rapid spike of amino acids and then it's going to drop off. And you don't want to be catabolic at night. If, if the, that, that could very much negatively affect your fat loss. Mm -hmm. um, so you should be fine. I would just do it in the morning without any sweeteners. Okay. And make sure that you're getting, if the target is fat loss, I would aim for one gram of protein uh, per pound of uh, desired body weight, lean okay. body weight. Okay. And that does not mean that if you take a chicken breast that's 20 grams of total weight, or let's say 100 grams, if you, if you have a chicken breast of 100 grams, that's not 100 grams of pure protein, there's a lot of water, fat, et cetera, and you need to take that into account. And you can use a site called Nutrition Data to find out what the protein content is of, uh, of whole foods like that. Okay, great. And, and does it work for women also in terms of muscle building as, as oh, effectively yeah. as it does for men? Uh, as effectively, no, just because you, you're going to have perhaps less than 1 20th of the, the circulating free testosterone. But uh, the method is the same. Okay. For gaining muscle, muscular mass, whether that's one pound or 20 or 50 pounds, the approach is the same. So yes, okay. uh, for gaining muscular mass, uh, that's part of the reason that, that some women get frustrated after the first two or three weeks of the slow carb diet because they say, I'm not losing weight, I'm not losing weight. In reality, they've been protein deficient, so now that they're consuming uh, whole proteins and getting more of it, they naturally, even without exercise, gain muscular mass. That's why it is critical for women in particular because women are usually on more of a merry-go-round or musical chairs of fad diets. Mm -hmm. You need to track measurements, and that means either body fat composition, like a DEXA scan or a BOD pod, uh, or on, in simplest terms, you need to take circumference measurements because the inches come off well before the pounds for women, and that means you're losing body fat, even if the weight stays the same. But yes, it works. Okay, thanks. Now, Tim, just a quick question. You mentioned the slow carb diet, and you put an ebook out with that. Is that still available? Uh, the, no. The, the ebook was an experiment. I run a lot of experiments. And uh, it was done for many, many different reasons. That's the, an area that I'm looking at closely. Uh, you can buy it right now on Blurb, but it costs $10,000 a piece. So if people want to know, if somebody said, you know, I, I like this guy and I want to try some pre-made diets based on his recommendations, where could they go? There's a, there's a delivery place in New York City. Oh, what's it called? Uh, Charlie and I used it for the entire time I was here for the book launch. And we had uh, slow-carb compliant food delivery. Know I, think it? It, I think it was Pump. I think it's called Pump. Is there, a, is there a chain called Pump, a small chain? Yeah. There we go. Pump New York City. And certainly, the diet is easy to follow. It's really easy. I mean, you can go out to, I went out to French restaurants, Italian restaurants. You don't have to change much. Just avoid the rice and the bread and substitute in something else or pay for a side of vegetables. It's really easy. Hi, uh, my name is Barry, and uh, the question is actually uh, very similar with the, uh, with the U.S. News one. It's actually going to be regarding about the sleep, um, two hours sleep. <laughs> so um, um, 
according to your book, you can function well only within two hours sleep a day, uh, taking six 20-minute uh, naps uh, spaced evenly over a 24-hour period, known as the polyphasic sleep. And according to you and Dustin Char Chartis, I uh, mentioned that non-REM sleep is just unnecessarily unconscious, uh, um, unconsciousness. And according to Matt Bianchi, the neurologist and sleep physician in, at uh, Ma Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, quoted, quoted in that article, uh, mentioned that you know the claim is completely untrue. And the fact that how like the, the uh, how it's actually a foundation is. So I just like to ask you, um, you know, knowing that you're a data person, uh, I just like to know what evidence that you actually have that these prof uh, medical professionals don't have, mm -hmm. uh, and and. Uh, and are actually deny are saying like you know they're actually denying on this possibility mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah. So the the first I would say is that uh, on the non REM sleep being wasted time, I actually I disagree with with Dustin on that. But I I, do, I didn't want to edit his work. But the the end, the moral of the story being that you can you can split sleep into multiple sessions to reduce total necessary volume is accurate. And the, the data that I have that, that certain MDs may not have is, uh, it ranges. So the first would be, uh, I can't really, uh, I can't talk about this specific company, but I'm working with a company and they're tracking with EEGs, brainwaves and so forth, and tracking multiple variables, polyphasic sleepers. And I'll be debuting this data on my blog. So it will be out shortly. Uh, but you can demonstrate very clearly these people are actually engaging in polyphasic sleep and that it does have the purported impacts on REM in terms of total percentage of, of sleep. Uh, the second point I would really emphasize is that people are misquoted in the media all the time. And I have tremendous respect for people who are medical professionals who are good at what they do. And this guy is probably good at what he does. What I imagine happened is that the journalist said, Tim Ferriss claims this, this, and this. What do you think about that? And I would, to put his response in context, I, wanted, I would want to know what the this, this, and this is. So for example, in the current issue of Elle magazine, there's a four-page spread called, uh, I don't remember the exact title, but it's, uh, it's a piece on, on me and slow-carb diet and so forth. And it says, Tim Ferriss uh, dislikes the medical establishment. Totally false. Totally false. I, I dislike bad doctors, and there are plenty of them. And there is a, a joke that a friend of mine told me. He, he used to work at the Mayo Clinic, which is a fantastic organization. And I say that just to indicate his credibility. He's an MD. And he said, uh, C equals MD. Do you know what that means? I said, no. He goes, if you get a C in medical school, you pass and you get your MD. Somebody's at the bottom of that class. There are a lot of bad doctors. Uh, I don't have anything against the medical establishment. I have something against bad science and people who stick their head in the sand rather than keep up to date on developments in their own field. Uh, but that's how I would respond. And uh, the, it's a very, that's also a very controversial area. Uh, but I can point to people who have done it and uh, we're going to have some really fascinating data that will demonstrate exactly how that's possible. And the other thing is, just a quick, sorry guys, I'll, I'll, I'll hang out, don't worry. The, uh, the other thing I would say is that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something, all right? I don't, I don't follow Uberman's schedule, taking 20 minute naps throughout the day, because I would be here and I'd be like, guys, it's been awesome, I need my 20 minute nap or I'll be screwed for 48 hours. It's antisocial and completely untenable for the type of social life that I want to have. But I like to point out the extreme scenarios 
just like wearing a continuous glucose monitor and so forth and so on, you know, rack deadlifts with 650 pounds, whatever it might be, to say, look, you losing five pounds is easy, all right? Let me show you all these ridiculous things that I forced my body to adapt to so that whatever excuse that might be holding you back seems completely unjustified. Hey, Tim. I uh, started reading your book. I'm going to be a junior in college studying business. I don't go to a very good college, to be honest with you. I go to a college that's in the shadow of an Ivy League college that has a better business program than we do. And everyone kind of poops on us for being the worst business program in our little town in upstate New York. Um, so I got to a point where I was talking to a college counselor, and she said, where are you going to go to get your MBA? And I said, I don't know. And I found your blog post, Make Your Own MBA. Um, basically, the most in interesting thing I found in the field, brought it to my college counselor. She said, this is complete garbage. You can't do any of this. You need to stay here. Get your MBA. Give us another $50,000. And um, That's poor salesmanship on her part. Yeah. So my question to you is, do you think education and business are directly related? Now, you're educated in neurobiology and East Asian studies. You have no background in finance or business. You, were, you did study at Princeton. But what do you think the correlation between business, education, and success are? The, the correlation between education and income, as best I can tell, is all over the map. There's no clear correlation. Uh, if you want to make $100,000 to $150,000 a year in investment banking or in management consulting, maybe. If you want to make a few billion, zero correlation from what I can tell, right? Unless you're in the hedge fund world, and then it's always you know, Harvard, Princeton, the usual suspects. The, the objective, from my viewpoint, of a liberal arts education is to produce a well-rounded human being who's good at asking questions and has a broad level of curiosity. Having a broad level of curiosity and being able to ask good questions is what makes Steve Jobs as good at his job as he is. All right. so, so there is power in being a generalist who's capable of, of seeing the big picture and spotting converging trends before other people do. In, I'm more skeptical of an MBA program, as you know, uh, because it's one thing to develop a certain skill set that is insulated by a very safe laboratory. It's quite another thing to be sitting across the table from someone with 20 years more negotiating experience with you, getting your ass handed to you when you're the VP of biz dev for a startup where your stock options, <laughs> the value of your stock options is dependent on how well you negotiate in that room. Millions or nothing. So my recommendation to people uh, like yourself who are looking to develop a, a real world skill set for business, which is very broad, but let's just assume that it's a self-funded startup, is to get a job at a company, let's just say between 10 and 50 employees, ideally fewer than 50, where you'll be working directly for a chief, someone who is a chief deal maker for that company. And that could be the CEO, could be the CEO, could be a VP of sales, could be the CFO. Doesn't really matter. The industry doesn't even really matter, from my viewpoint. I think that the first few years out of college in particular, you should focus on learning and, and acquiring skill sets rather than earning. Don't make the potential payout the highest priority because it'll, it'll lead you to make poor decisions where you're, indent you're an indentured slave in a business that can get you up to 100 or 200K. Hey, Tim. So 
on your blog, probably about two years ago, you had a guest post from a guy, Leo, his last name starts with a B. I don't want to butcher it. Babauta. Yeah, so it was about changing behavior. And he recommended not changing more than one thing at a time. However, in the four-hour work week, when you talk about dreamlining, you recommend you taking four things for goals, for objective that you're working towards. So could you possibly reconcile those two ideas as far as why set four goals versus changing one behavior at the same time? So, right. So what I would say is it's, it's just to tap dance a little and buy some time, is it's, it's absolutely fine to have multiple objectives as long as the importance of those objectives is ordered properly. So you won't necessarily uh, equally weight all of those things. Uh, I would also differentiate between three or four things you want to accomplish that are simply capitalizing on current behaviors and changing an entrenched behavior like smoking or eating. Those are very different things. So I do agree with Leo that let's just say you want to, and this is a real example from BJ Fogg actually, if you want to help, let's say, people over the age of 50 to quit smoking. If you say, here's a, here's a smartphone, we want you to use texting to help you quit smoking. Those are two new behaviors, two brand new behavioral changes, and the failure rate's going to increase. Whereas on the other hand, if I say, what do you want to have? What do you want to be? What do you want to do? And we define those things carefully, and then one of them is I want to buy an Aston Martin DB9, and my next step for that one is call and find out how much financing is on a monthly basis in these three places. That is not a new behavior. It's a new objective, it's not a new behavior. So I, sus I suspect that for each of those, that, that would be my answer. But in general, I would say yes, one, one behavioral change at a time. Uh, I'm, I don't know, do we have to get out of here? Are we, getting, are we in a rush? I can, I can answer more questions, I'm cool with that. Hi, Tim. Um, I'm, cu Hi I'm curious about, um, you've had so many vast experiences in life and you've done so many incredible things. What, out of all the things that you've done, have been some of the, the few defining moments, the few pivotal uh, experiences that really you know, changed the game for you, that made things take a t completely different path, would you say? Uh, first would be a, a year abroad as an exchange student from age 15 to 16. Landing in Japan as my first, thank you, over, uh, my first extended foreign experience was in Japan from Long Island. <laughs> that was really eye-opening. It forced me to do a number of things to completely reassess how I had been taught language because I assumed I was bad at language learning. And that was with Spanish, let alone Japanese. Uh, so I had to completely develop my own approach from the ground up. Secondly, realizing how many behaviors, collective behaviors, are more or less arbitrary. Uh, there, there is no one right way. You know, do you take a shower and you soap in the shower? Do you take a shower, soap off, then get in a bathtub with their, your host grandmother, father, and mother have already been in? Kind of seems gross, but came to be normal. Do you drive on this side of the road or that side of the road? Do you sell... Do you sell bourbon in a bar, or do you also sell it in a vending machine? <laughs> Not that I drank it all at 15 or 16. Um, it, well, along those lines, you know, is it normal to have senpai, the people above you in the hierarchy of the school, treat you like a slave? <laughs> and do you have to follow their directions? And the short answer is yes, you do have to follow their directions, or they throw you on your head, in the judo club at least. Uh, so that was a very, that was a very catalyzing 
an empowering experience for me. And I came close to going back to the US. At the, at the six month mark or so, I was demoralized. I wasn't making the progress I hoped I would make in Japanese. And I've since recognized that that is a very typical plateauing point for language learning. And as long as people expect that, and I can build in that expectation, they can overcome it. Just like for losing body fat, if someone needs to lose 30, 40, 50 pounds of body fat, I say no exercise. I say focus on the diet for the first two months. Typically, for a number of reasons I won't bore you with, you're going to plateau between weeks 8 and 12. That's when you layer in your first exercise, and then you'll overcome that plateau. Uh, others, other catalyzing experiences. Uh, girlfriend in 2004 leaving and giving me the, the plaque, the go-away plaque. The business hours ended 5 p.m. That was a bit of a kick in the ass, to put it mildly. That certainly propelled me in a different direction. Uh, Another would be becoming involved in the startups, to come back to your wor real world MBA. Becoming involved in the startup scene and investing in advising and realizing that selling a company doesn't need to be complicated. And that gave me the confidence, which is the prerequisite for everything else, the confidence and the technical know-how and the, the relationships with lawyers so that I ended up selling my own company. And that, is, that was something that evaded me simply because I thought it could not be done. That's it. I even put in the first book. I was like, it was impossible to sell. Well, lo and behold, not, not impossible. Those would be a few that come to mind right away. Uh, hey, hey, Tim. Uh, how you doing? My name is John. Um, I got a workout question for you. All right. Uh, by the way, the book is amazing. I could probably, I haven't tried every chapter, but I could prove every chapter to someone. I've, the ones I've tried have... Awesome. I've made amazing gains. Congratulations. Uh, but uh, my question is, uh, I've been working out all my life, and I, I just wanted to know your thoughts on uh, calisthenics versus weight training. And how, like, uh, I mean, someone, you can squat 400 pounds, but doesn't mean it would translate into a one-legged squat. Right. You Definitely. See? Mm -hmm. and, like, and that comes into play with fighting and a lot of functional sports. Are you, are you training for something in particular? Uh, no, I just make goals. I make okay. goals every few months, and then mm -hmm. I achieve them, you know. But mm -hmm. I was just wondering on that, as I'm, now I'm going through, cal you know, trying to get more core calisthenics training. I read mm -hmm. some uh, nice books from uh, the, the guys with the kettlebell website. I forgot yeah, the yeah, Dragon, yeah. Dragon Door. Door. Yeah, and, Did you and read Combat Conditioning? Or combat, no, Convict convic Conditioning? Yeah, and that, it's fascinating, <laughs> and it makes a lot of sense to I'll me. I'll explain that in a second, guys. Because I know a lot, of, a lot of people that are strong that way. Uh-huh. But uh, the strength training, you make faster gains somehow. Like I'll gain size in a month mm -hmm. doing weights. Yep. It doesn't translate at all to... Right. So I'll, I'll tell you... Uh, let me explain. I'll give a little bit of context for the audience. So Convict Conditioning is a, is a cool book. It, it's actually written by an ex-con who was forced to do all of his exercise within the confines of something like a 10 by 10 foot cell. And got to the point where he could do one-armed handstands and uh, handstand push-ups and so forth. It's cool. It's a very, Sick. it's a very cool book that shows you the power of positive constraints. Resistance is resistance, as far as I'm concerned. So you you can make gains with free, uh, let's just say, body weight exercise. And you could look at CrossFit examples, uh, whether that's using the rings, using dips, doing pistols, which are one-legged squats. You can get tremendously strong uh, doing bodyweight exercise. The challenge with bodyweight exercise, if you add no additional weight, is the ability to apply progressive resistance. It's harder 
in a precise way to increase the resistance 5%, 10%, 2%, 10%. So if you're in a push-up, yes, you can make various changes to elevation and so forth. You could remove, let's say, one foot to have to work with counter-rotation. But to go from two hands to one hand, that's a big-ass jump. And you're going to end up compromising form and so forth. Uh, but I love bodyweight exercise. I think it's fantastic. I do a lot of uh, bodyweight exercise uh, while I'm traveling as well. And if you think you're strong, if you, if you can, if, like you said, to use your example, if you think you can squat a lot, most people just don't bother squatting, which is criminal. But if you don't squat, just try to learn how to do a pistol, a one-legged squat. Uh, and uh, for people who want to learn the skill of strength, and make no mistake, there is a skill to strength, understanding the biomechanics and the physics involved. That's the fastest way to get stronger, whether it's in your sport or in your life. Uh, consider taking the RKC-1, the, the Russian kettlebell certification, level one. It will change forever how you look at strength training and the mechanics involved. Uh, but yeah, I, I love both. I'm agnostic. Mix it up, right? Yeah, mix it up. By the way, it's funny. You and I talk a lot about our titles of our book, which sounds so ridiculous. But that guy puts our book to shame. Oh, that, is the, conditioning? that is the best title it's, I've it's, heard it's in a, years. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's a great title. Question to the far, far left. Hey, what's up, Tim? Hey. Um, just quick, uh, quick uh, couple questions right here. Um, has there anybody in your team that's been really important to you, besides yourself, obviously, like your team of people that you work with um, that's been really instrumental in your success, whether it be an agent or a coach or a parent, something like that? The other thing is um, any tips on lowering triglycerides? And the third is what's the book's take on alcohol? All right. The first question, real fast. We're talking about publishing. Let's. Sh I just have to constrain a little bit. Yeah, whatever. Publishing or you know, uh, interviews. Somebody who's helped do stuff that you couldn't do, in terms of uh, taking you to the next level. I'll just talk about publishing because that's how most people here came to know who the, ha the hell I am in the first place, uh, which was a real inflection point for me. My agent, Steve Hanselman, absolutely critically important. And I, I want to emphasize also with a good agent, and, and we've had conversations about this before, but from my experience, a good agent is not getting paid the 15% in the world of books for selling the book. I can do that on my own right now. I'm paying him for all the negotiating and work that comes after the book is sold. Make no mistake, selling the book is the easy part. Even though I was turned down by 26 out of 27 publishers, selling is the easy part. It's, it's the, the conflicts and the conflict resolution and the production and the control of the content, that's where you're going to have your battles. Uh, and he's also an ex-publisher. So recommendation for people who are considering the traditional publishing route, get an agent who understands the production. So he used to run Harper Business, Harper San Francisco, and Harper Resource, which means he, is, he absolutely knows the costs involved and the profit and loss, which gives me a huge advantage over people who have agents who have been nothing other than agents. Uh, Charlie Hone has been critical uh, over the last two years or so, certainly in the production of The 4-Hour Body and has helped me to identify where my management or instruction needs to be dramatically clarified. Uh, but we have, we have a great working relationship and I've learned a lot from Charlie. Uh, the entire publishing team has been very important. Uh, and make, it's, it's important to realize self-publishing is not a panacea. Uh, people view it that way. I could talk for ages about it, but, uh, but I won't. <clears throat> And then my friends, choosing my peer group very, very carefully. So I've been very fortunate to get to know people like Ramit, uh, like Kevin Rose, like Matt Mullenweg. And I mean, I've learned a hell of a lot from Ramit. And that's, we have that type of, we get enjoyment out of that trade. 
uh, trading lessons learned. And that's true with Kevin, that's true with Matt, that's true with all of my friends that I choose. I think the peer group is critical. Triglycerides, uh, the, the, the easiest, so there are a few things. You will get temporarily elevated triglycerides from fructose consumption, with fruit for example, uh, but removing, removing the, the grains and carbohydrates is gonna be the fastest way to do that. Uh, otherwise, you can take supplementation, which will help to reduce cholesterol. But for example, red, ye uh, red rice, uh, red yeast extract, is that right? Am I getting that right? Red yeast rice extract, it's been a long time since I've used it, will get you the effect that a statin would, but you have to recognize that molecularly, it's effectively a statin. So uh, it's not just because it's a, a supplement intrinsically uh, safer or without side effects. Uh, niacin, as far as low-hanging fruit goes, 500 to 750 milligrams. I'm not a doctor, I don't play on the, on the internet, but I will just say personally, 500 to 750 milligrams of slow niacin prior to bed, also quite effective. Uh, but first and foremost, it would be removing the, uh, the starches and refined carbohydrates. Almost without exception, people will see dramatic decreases in triglycerides, and also for people who are pre-diabetic or predisposed to diabetes, uh, you will see, a, I've seen, and this is not gonna be true for everyone, but dramatic reductions in hemoglobin A1C. So people are typically, if they're looking at glucose, they might look at fasting glucose. Fasting glucose is fine for a snapshot in time, but hemoglobin A1C is thought of as a three-month indicator, so it's very important for diabetes. And I've seen that fall by 50 plus percent. Uh, so those, those would all be things to look at. But yes, triglycerides is, is, is a good idea to keep track of. Much more informative than total cholesterol. Oh, alcohol. Uh, I, like, I, love it. I, I might just be rationalizing my own fondness for wine, but uh, I, I really have not, in terms of trending blood tests, uh, seen much damage from one or two glasses of wine a few nights a week. Uh, red wine specifically, because you're looking at the BRAC as, and the residual uh, sugar content. So for white wines, that'll naturally be higher, particularly for Rieslings and so forth. So the drier red wines, one or two glasses, doesn't do much damage from, from what I've seen. When you get into higher proof alcohols or, or be, uh, alcoholic beverages uh, or more drinks than that, you're placing a burden on the liver. And if the, if the liver is processing alcohol, its capacity to oxidize fats, et cetera, is compromised. Um, so uh, that would be a recommendation. If you're looking for a drink, if you don't want to be that guy at the bar where all your buddies are like slamming back Guinnesses and you're like, I'll have a Pinot Noir, please. If you don't want to be that guy, then you can have what's called the NorCal Margarita, uh, which Rob Wolf introduced me to. And I'll, I'll let you look it up. But a NorCal, N-O-R-C-A-L Margarita is also a great drink. It'll get you drunk quickly, so you'll be a cheap date, at least for yourself. Uh, it will minimize the hangovers, and it won't produce the type of glycemic response that most cocktails will. Rep, final question, okay. second row center. Hey, Tim. Um, through reading your blogs and your book, I can see you've been to like a lot of places all over the world. You mentioned be, uh, Japan before, and I see on your Twitter that you live in uh, California now. In your opinion, what do you think is the best place to live and why? <laughs> the best place to live and why? Uh, I live in my favorite city in the world, and that's San Francisco. I could live anywhere, and I choose San Francisco. My reasons for being there are, number one, it's a metropolitan city with very easy, fast access to the, the most beautiful nature I've seen anywhere in the world. If I want to go to Yosemite, I want to go to Tahoe, I want to go to Santa Cruz, I can surf and ski in the same day if I feel like running around a bit. It's a beautiful city uh, and uh, beautifully situated. 
San Francisco also has a, an informal creative energy that I have not found in that strength and concentration anywhere else. A lot happens in New York. I love New York. I spend a lot of time here. But people pride themselves on being somewhat neurotic here, and it's hyperkinetic. And this is speaking as someone who grew up in New York. I don't like activity for the sake of activity, and certainly there's, there's plenty of workaholism in San Francisco, but the, the big, it's all about the big idea. And if you're a 20-year-old with a big idea, as long as you can make a compelling argument for why you can make it happen, you will find people to support you. And that's really, really exciting to me. The, the, the willingness and eagerness to change the world in San Francisco is unlike anything I've seen anywhere else. And there are some fantastic, uh, there's some fantastic centers of entrepreneurship, uh, both current, like New York City, certainly would be one, Los Angeles, very burgeoning tech scenes. Then you have places like Berlin, uh, and San Francisco and the Bay Area, um, they don't have a monopoly on entrepreneurship, but it is a, a breed of creativity that I just have not found that palpable anywhere else in the world. And that's really exciting to me. And the weather's nice, too. Sorry? And the weather's nice, too. Yeah, and the weather's nice yeah, yeah. Uh, up until about 4 p.m. And then you better have your jacket because it gets chilly. Uh, so I would encourage everyone here to take a trip to San Francisco and have some wine in Sonoma while you're at it. All right, guys. I'll stick around for just a little bit. Yeah. Um, but thank you all very much for coming. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Apple for hosting us.